0: our pastor Peter isn't here today and consequently we have the joy of hearing from our guest preacher this morning, uh, Pastor John Bell. John Bell is the founding and lead pastor of New City Baptist Church for the past 10 years. He's been married to Jill, his wife, for the past seven and he grew up in the Thousand Islands of Ontario and came to Toronto in 2004 to study at Toronto Baptist Seminary. So brother, thank you for being here and please come preach the word to us. Well, good morning, everyone. It's a, it's a privilege, it's a delight to be with you here this morning. Uh, you are in our prayers. New City Baptist Church prays for you all the time at our corporate worship services on Sunday and during our, our midweek prayer meetings as well. Uh, we're so thankful for the work of God that he's doing here in this church, in this congregation. And uh, thank you for giving me uh, the privilege of being able to come here today and open up God's word with you. Friends, I have, I have great news Proclaim to you today great news that the God who has justified you wants you to know, that He wants you to come to grips with personally in your heart, and then act upon that you might be filled with joyful confidence as you look ahead to the prospect of one day beholding God in His unshielded glory. Today's sermon text. Is about one of the most glorious themes in all of Holy Scripture. It's about the Christian's deliverance from the power of sin. The biblical fact is our sanctification, our progressive holiness, is grounded in our union with Jesus in His resurrection. In Jesus' resurrection, God has secured our victory over the world, our flesh, and the person of Satan, the devil, which means uh, my my love of money, my destructive tongue, my lust, my arrogant pride, my lovelessness. Jesus' resurrection has a direct and a necessary impact on all of that garbage. And Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, describes how we move from being objects of God's deserved wrath to being God's recreative handiwork. From walking in disobedience, from walking in sins, to walking in the good works that God planned for his people to do, even before the creation of the world. If you look at your bulletins, there's a sermon outline. You can look at where it says the big picture. This passage shows how the great power of God Exhibited in the resurrection and enthronement of Jesus took Christians from existence under the power of the world, the flesh, and the devil into a position of victory over those forces. Which means, now hear this, God's not showing us in this text. He's not showing us something that as Christians we should aspire to. He's telling us of a completed state of affairs. An objective salvation historical fact with direct and necessary and inevitable consequences for every person here today who confesses the name of Jesus Christ. And perhaps for some, uh, today's message will be a sober warning, a wake-up call, because that habitual repentant obedience is not present uh, you are not living a holy life. So there needs to be repentance. There needs to be a turning back to Jesus Christ. For others, this knowledge of what God has accomplished for us in the resurrection of his son will fuel the fires of grateful grateful worship and praise to God. Now, I'm not I'm I'm going to need you to be following along in your Bibles today very closely. This is one of those passages that really rewards careful reading. The Apostle Paul wants us to truly see how hopeless, how desperate our situation was, apart from our union with the living, risen, and enthroned Jesus Christ. And he doesn't whitewash the situation one bit. And so the opening three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 are probably as bleak, they're probably as terrifying as anything we'll read in the Bible. But the Apostle Paul, what he needs to do first is he needs to lay out the hopeless groundwork in order to make it clear that the salvation that has come to sinners as a free gift, just received by faith, and as, is the result of God's merciful and loving character. So I think we can think of this entire passage as before and an after snapshot. And if by God's grace we're able to track along with Paul through all ten of these verses, then I believe our gratitude and our love for what God has done for us in the gospel of his Son will reach new glorious heights. This passage is astonishing. It's astounding. It's beautiful. So if you have your, your red uh, Pew Bibles, if you pay, turn to page 827, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2. We start in verse 1. My first point is this. We're looking at the former bondage. Verses 1 through 3. This is on page 827. Verse 1. Paul writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. I'm just going to stop there. I think one of the greatest books about God ever written, it has to be, John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. And Institutes famously begins with this sentence. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, knowledge of God and of ourselves. That's true, isn't it? John Piper, he makes an excellent point in reference to that. He says, What we may need reminding of in our day is not that the knowledge of God is difficult to comprehend and embrace. That's more or less obvious. But that the knowledge of ourselves is just as difficult to comprehend and embrace. Indeed, it may be more difficult because we tend to think that we do know ourselves. When in fact the depths of our condition without the help of God is beyond our comprehension. And I believe that really gets to the heart of what we read here in verses 1 through 3. Look with me at verse 1. God is telling us something about ourselves in this verse that most people, I would say, in this world, flat out deny. And sadly, sadly, even many Christians would want to qualify it so extensively as to effectively deny its truth. So verse 1, he says, As for you, and he's speaking to all Christians... As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Friends, here is why we need a Savior. Because without a Savior, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul says it twice, also in verse 5. He says, we were dead in transgressions. So he's really hammering away at that point. So if you're a Christian here today... Let me, let me put a question to you. This is the great thing about being a visiting preacher. I have no idea who's a Christian, who's not. Uh, I was, I was, I, I'm applying this indiscriminately to everybody here. Uh, looking back, how do you think of your sin and your, your innate spiritual vitality, your level of spirituality, if I can use a nebulous phrase, uh, before God saved you? How are you doing? Um, as you look back on your spiritual condition outside of Jesus Christ, how would you characterize it? How are you doing? Because maybe the Lord saved you when you were a child and you were a real goody-two-shoes sort of kid. When you look back, do you think of yourself, spiritually speaking, as perhaps walking with something of a, of a limp in your sin when the Lord saved you at age seven? Or perhaps the Lord saved you a bit later in life. Perhaps you were in high school. Maybe you were partying pretty hard in those days, living a very selfish and typically teenage rebellious lifestyle. When you look back, do you think of yourself as being sort of confined to a wheelchair, spiritually speaking? Or maybe the Lord saved you much later in life, after you had the opportunity to really wallow in some serious sinfulness... And so you think of your, your spiritual life in those days before the Lord saved you as that you were, you were on life support. I mean, you were, you were barely hanging on. No. All of us, from the goody two-shoes that the Lord saved at age seven, to the pimp the Lord saves at age 50, we were all dead in our sins. All of us were in the morgue. And that's not hyperbolic language, that's not the language of exaggeration, it's biblical theological truth. Dead means dead. The Christian writer Arthur W. Pink, he wrote this 100 years ago, not much has changed I'm afraid, he wrote this, when addressing the unsaved, preachers today often draw an analogy between God sending the gospel to the sinner And a sick man in bed with some healing medicine on the table beside him. All he needs to do is reach forth his hand and take it. But in order for this illustration to be in any way true to the picture which Scripture gives us of the fallen, the depraved sinner, the sick man in bed must be described as one who is blind so that he cannot see the medicine his hand paralyzed so that he is unable to reach forth for it, and his heart not only devoid of all confidence in the medicine, but filled with hatred against the physician himself. Oh, what superficial views of man's desperate plight are today entertained. He wrote that in 1914. Uh, Christ came here not to help those who were willing to help themselves, but to do for his people What they were incapable of doing for themselves to open the eyes of the blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Brothers and sisters, our soul was dead, it was unchanged. There wasn't even a spark of light, not even a little bit, nothing. We all of us were blind to the glory of Jesus Christ. We all were deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. We had no love for God, no sensitive awareness of his personal reality. We had no longing for true gospel fellowship with his people. Not just the, the good kinds of people or the bad kinds of people, but the good kinds of people too. Everybody, all of us, there wasn't one exception. We were as response unresponsive to God as a corpse. Though we were created by God, though we were created for God, we lived without God. We were, in fact, Satan's slaves. And by our sin and our rebellion, we proved that we were Satan's slaves. But we thought we had so much freedom, didn't we? Freedom from our Creator. We had had freedom from His laws. We had freedom to do as we pleased. But as Paul goes on to explain... Our former lifestyle, which characterizes all of those outside of Jesus Christ, was not true freedom. It was all evidence of a fearful bondage, slavery to forces over which we had no control. And this is where Paul takes us in verses 2 and 3. He names three of those forces of bondage. He says it's the world, the devil, and the flesh. Look at verse 1 again. and He's just laying out the bleak, desperate groundwork here. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. The apostle saying, we proved we were spiritually dead by drifting along the stream of this world's ideas. This world's ideas of living. We proved we were spiritually dead by adopting a social value system that was alien to God, one that was hostile to His rule. It was a value system that may have seemed progressive and liberating and freeing and empowering. Our unbelieving friends, our unbelieving family did nothing but encourage us in our lifestyle. Yes, that's a good way to live. Everybody liked our God defying Facebook posts, but those worldly attitudes those habits that were worldly, those worldly preferences, actually held us in captivity. It's like uh, The Matrix. That's kind of getting getting an older movie now. It's like the 20th anniversary is coming up, I think. But the entire human race thinks that they're living out their workaday lives, doing this, that, and the other thing, when the reality is they're in slavery. They're in bondage. They're all blind to the horrible, horrible truth and Paul then tells us the second influence that directs and enslaves all people outside of Jesus Christ. It is the person, the person of Satan. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. I've noticed that when Christians say we believe that there is a God, that God exists, we're going to find, I think, some people who will want to argue with us, Uh, but by and large, I've noticed that sort of generic theism in our culture, it's tolerated, it's accepted. I mean, once you start getting specific about Jesus being the Son of God, okay, then things come to a head, but... uh, by and large, generic theism in our culture. It's tolerated, it's accepted, you have a belief in God, that's okay. But that is not the case with the devil. Uh, if we were to speak of Satan and demons in the workplace, if demonology is in any way a functioning part of our worldview, then people think we're downright kooky. Uh, but the Bible tells us, no, Satan is a real person. He is, in fact, our archenemy. And he hates the gospel. And he hates all those who love and obey the gospel. Brother, sister, there is a person out there, a wicked, angelic creature, who is much more powerful and intelligent than we are, a person who hates us, and who every day tempts us to rise up in anarchistic revolt against the holy and loving God whose image we bear and who will judge us on the last day? That's the reality. That, that makes the plotline of The Matrix look like a cute kid story. The real world biblical reality is infinitely worse than anything ever conceived by Hollywood. And Satan wants to make our life a misery. He wants us dead, and he wants the, God's church around the globe destroyed, and he wants us with him in hell. Where we can both defy God and be tormented for our treasonous defiance for all of eternity. And before the Lord, in his love and mercy, saved us, we were his captives. We were Satan's slaves. We did his bidding. And we loved our slavery. We wanted more slavery. The more, the better. That was my motto the more the better. Our plight was desperate. It was desperate. The third force that held us in sinful bondage, the flesh. Verse 3 again. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Now, this concept of flesh is notoriously difficult to, to uh, distill to one English word. Uh, for the sake of making things easy, Think of it in this context like this. This is what he's talking about. It's our own natural tendency to rebel against God in our thoughts and in our desires. And Paul adds that our conduct as we gratify the cravings of our flesh and rebellion against God was in keeping with the desires of a worldly, satanic outlook. All three of these influences work together for evil. Our flesh dominated our lives, and so we happily carried out its dictates. Brothers and sisters, before Jesus Christ set us free, (coughs) we were, hear this, we were natural, we were willing, blind, incorrigible, helpless, guilty, slaves of the prevailing secular culture, slaves of our fallen nature, twisted with its self-centeredness, and slaves of the devil, the ruler of the kingdom of the air who held us in captivity and what this meant was that we could not respond to life's decisions neutrally we were incapable of that just look at how prejudiced we were towards evil i mean there is a bent in all of this a huge bent towards evil we were in complete bondage to all of these wicked influences in short There was no way we could respond positively to the gospel. Repent and believe, just like that, impossible. How could we? We who were dead in slavery to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Salvation, this is pink again, he says, salvation is not for a sick person who needs a doctor. It's for a dead person who needs a miracle. Amen. That is biblically 100% true. We had rebelled knowingly, voluntarily, all of us, against the loving authority of our Creator God. That is how we had fallen under the dominion of Satan. And so, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Hopeless, hopeless, hopeless. Unless, unless God Himself intervened and brought life, where there was only death. Unless God himself intervened and showed mercy, where his own justice demanded wrath, as we've been singing this morning. And so this sets the stage for what God would accomplish on our behalf in the gospel of his Son, This is what makes the good news of the gospel good news, brothers and sisters, because it counteracts all of this, right? So point number two in your bulletin, the new life, verses four to seven, verse four, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And truly, this this is the Mount Everest of the entire passage. It's the Mount Everest of the entire book of Ephesians. And what we see so clearly is the contrast between what Paul has just written about this desperate, hopeless condition of fallen humanity, and then the gracious, loving, and sovereign action of God in saving sinners from His wrath. That's the contrast. We were dead. We were enslaved. We were condemned. There wasn't the faintest spark of spiritual life or hope, but, and, and what a great word that is. This one little word, The the, the justly condemned sinner's eternal salvation hangs on that one word. But, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. Amen. Praise God. What an astonishing, beautiful thing to read. Praise God. Now, follow closely. The argumentation here is tight. Uh, verse follows verse as Paul builds up his case. He's making his points. The theology is heavy, but it's teaching. It's going to fuel the fires of our worship and our adoration of God like nothing else, I promise you. This needs to be clear in every Christian's mind. What Paul is speaking of here is the very essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has taken action in Christ to reverse our condition of sin. And as Christians, we need to inquire exactly, exactly what has God done and why has he done it. And if you're not a Christian here today, if you're not united to Jesus Christ, if you're a person who disbelieves the authoritative truth claims of the Bible, of Holy Scripture, if as yet you do not see yourself as spiritually dead and in bondage to the world, the flesh and the devil and deserving of god's judicial wrath if you disbelieve if you deny all those things then you need to pray, pay the closest attention friend while also humbling yourself before god and praying to him for grace to believe these things that i'm preaching from god's word because as things presently stand you you are condemned And your spiritual, eternal situation is just as hopeless as it once was for every forgiven, heaven-bound Christian here today. And the truth I'll be preaching from here to the end of my sermon is the condemned sinner's only hope. I need to acknowledge the help I received from John Stott and his little commentary on Ephesians, Uh, Stott really helped me distill all of uh, this glorious theological teaching in a way that keeps the cookies on the bottom shelf, as they say. Now, uh, I haven't done this in your handout, but we could divide the rest of the passages into two parts. What God has done for us in Jesus Christ and why God did it. So what's he done? Why did he do it? First, what has God done for us in Jesus Christ? In one word, God saved us. Verses 5 and 8 make that same assertion. By grace you have been saved. By grace you've been saved. Now now there's a word. Saved. That needs to make us sit up and pay close attention because we're never saved from something slightly annoying, are we? We're We're never just saved from a hangnail. We're saved from sinking ships. We're saved from burning buildings. The gospel has saved us from something bad. Again, that's what makes it good news. In this, in this context, <coughs> what Christians have been saved from is the spiritual death and the satanic slavery and the divine wrath described for us in verses 1 to 3. Because of his great love for us, God saved us from all those things. How has God saved his people? Look at your handout. God Made us alive with Christ. God raised us up with Christ. God seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And those magnificent words, made us alive, raised us up, and seated us with him, they refer to three successive historical events in the saving career of Jesus Christ. You can see them again in your bulletins. Made us alive... That's a reference to the resurrection of Jesus. Raised us up, that's speaking about Jesus' ascension into heaven. Seated us with him, that's what we call Jesus' session. The word session is an archaic noun, an old word meaning sitting. Uh, The Christian doctrine of the session of Christ or the heavenly session uh, is that the ascended Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father So when you say the court is now in session, because the judge is sitting down, right? So, but that, what's astonishing about these three successive historical events, and in the Greek text, each one of them is just a single word, what's astonishing is not that Paul is affirming that God made alive and raised and seated Jesus. That's not what he's saying, but rather that God made alive, raised, and seated us with Jesus, Did you notice that? This is the interpretive crux of the entire passage. If I had symbols up here, I'd be, you know, banging and kicking them. (laughs) We need to slow it all down. This is super important. Brothers and sisters, what makes Christians distinct as a group, as a people, in comparison to every other people group on the planet. It's not just that we admire and even worship Jesus Christ. It's not just that we, we've signed along the dotted line when it comes to true orthodox biblical teaching. It's not just that we live our lives by a different set of moral standards compared to the rest of the rebellious world. No, what makes us distinct is our new solidarity as a people who are in Christ. Christ. That is our identity now, beloved. We are united together in Christ. We are not, first and foremost, Jew or Gentile. Our identity is not wrapped up in our skin color, our sexual orientation, our gender, our nationality, the money in our bank account. It is not our being a father, a mother, a husband, a wife, or single. We are not defined by what we've done in the past, or even something that happened to us in the past. We are not our jobs, we're not our looks, we're not our intellect. What defines us? What is at the very center of our identity as Christians? What is fundamental is our corporate union with Jesus Christ in his death burial, resurrection, ascension, and session. At the very time when we were spiritually dead, God made us alive with Christ. And this is just the first stroke of paint in a bright portrait of God's grace. Grace that stands in dramatic contrast to the dark landscape of human sin my sin that we read of in verses one two and three what do we see back there verses one two and three what we see is spiritual death in bondage to the world in bondage to the devil in bondage to the flesh by nature a child of wrath that that was our identity that's what was stamped on our passports who cares How else we may have defined ourselves, we were spiritually dead, satanic slaves bound for an eternal hell. That relativizes everything else, everything else. That puts everything into its proper perspective, doesn't it? Once we were slaves of Satan in his dungeon of spiritual death, gratifying the cravings of our sinful, self-centered flesh. But now we've been rescued. God has made us alive with Jesus Christ. But now we have forgiveness of sins and liberation from all those evil forces that held us in chains in verses 1, 2, and 3. But now we've come to spiritual life with Jesus in his resurrection. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. I want you to turn back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. I want to see how these two passages are linked. It's amazing to see this. There's a, again, there's an argument that Paul's following here. Go back to 118. Or one in verses, yeah. Um, In those verses, Paul praises God's incomparably great power by which he raised and exalted Christ to a position above every power, every ruler, every authority. Look at verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened as a divine enlightenment, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power. For us who believe that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when certain things took place. Now stop right there and think what what kind of comes to your mind when you think of God's mighty power, where does your mind go? For me, I think of creation. I think of creation ex nihilo, out of nothing, universes, galaxies, black holes, that kind of stuff. There's God's power on display. Paul doesn't hunt for the most powerful or the most difficult display of God's power. I mean, God is omnipotent, right? He's all-powerful. I mean, the equivalent of lifting his little finger and creating 50 billion universes is the same thing. It doesn't, there is no degree of difficulty when it comes to an omnipotent God doing something. Uh, what Paul does is he hunts for the most glorious, the most revealing of God's character. So as a result, he focuses on three events, the power exerted, When Christ was raised from death, the power displayed in the exalted Christ, the power exercised by Christ over everything for the church. Look at 19b. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms above all rule and authority Power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Brothers and sisters, what we're learning here in Ephesians chapter 1, and this carries over then in Ephesians chapter 2, our text this morning, is that there are levels of authority which we know very little about. Uh, Demonic powers, for instance. Uh, Angelic powers. Not only in this world, but also in the heavenly realm. The Bible doesn't get into a lot of detail about that. Uh, But over, what we do know, is over all of them, over all those angelic, satanic, wicked, whatever it might be, powers, is Christ Jesus. Over all of it. He's been elevated to his Father's right hand in consequence of his obedience to death and victorious resurrection. And now... In Ephesians chapter 2, this same language is applied directly to Christians. Listen carefully. Because we have been united with Jesus in his resurrection and his exaltation, and we've been seated with him in the heavenly realms, that means we too have a position of superiority and authority over the evil powers that enslaved us in verses 1, 2, and 3. That's Paul's argument. Because we have been united with Jesus in his resurrection, his exaltation, and his heavenly session. We too, all of us who are Christians, we have a position of superiority and authority over the evil powers that enslaved us in verses 1, 2, and 3. Brother, sister, you are no longer living under the authority and the coercion of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, of Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Do you see why? Do you see how that is? The power of God, which raised Jesus from the dead, is now available to you as you live in this fallen world, as you take your stand against the devil's schemes and you struggle against the spiritual forces of evil. What? encouragement this is what encouragement what a great thing to know theologically our very our very holiness and power over the schemes of the devil and over all of his spiritual attacks is all tied directly to the resurrection and exaltation of our savior we don't have to we don't have to download the app right for some kind of holiness silver bullet it's actually part of the christian operating system because we've been united with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and session. John Stott writes this <coughs> This talk about solidarity with Christ in his resurrection and exaltation is not a piece of meaningless Christian mysticism. It bears witness to a living experience that Christ has given us, on the one hand, a new life with a sensitive awareness of the reality of God and a love for him and for his people. And on the other hand, a new victory with evil increasingly under our feet. Beloved, if this does not fuel our worship of God, I mean, both here in a corporate setting as well as in our all of life worship, as we offer up our lives as a living sacrifice, Romans 12, what will? I mean, list off some truths more glorious than what we're reading about here. What joy it is to bask in the knowledge that once we were dead. But in Christ Jesus, we have been made spiritually alive. Once, all of us, we were in captivity to Satan, but now we have been enthroned with Jesus Christ. We need to know that truth. I just, I just want to kind of <coughs> stop and break this down for a second. We have three things. We, first, we need to know this truth, just intellectually, theologically. Once, once I was spiritually dead. But in Jesus Christ, I've been made spiritually alive. So... Step one, know that truth. Step two, Christian, come to grips with that truth. Appropriate it. Once I was a captive to Satan, but now I've been enthroned with Jesus Christ. It's not just some sort of dusty refrigerator magnet verse kind of concept. It's actually, um, think of it this way. Imagine a newly freed slave after the Civil War. Before the war, They had been someone else's property all of their lives. But now they're free. That former slave would know in a certain sense that they were liberated once they actually read the decree, right? But it might take a while for this truth to penetrate their consciousness in a way that actually leads to a change in behavior. They need to consider themselves as free persons. And then they like we need to act on that truth right so those are the three steps know the truth come to grips with that truth appropriate it for yourself and then act on that truth now why has God done this why did God do this look at verse 6 a very important verse God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages for all eternity he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I mean, wow, how how am I how am I supposed to preach a verse like that? It just seems better that I just shut my mouth and we have a, a time of corporate weeping for joy. That that's actually true. That's that's God inspired Scripture. I've never been to the Louvre uh, to see the Mona Lisa up close. I make no pretensions about knowing the first thing about fine art. uh, But I'm pretty sure that no one has ever viewed the Mona Lisa and then totally blown away asked, wow, who is that woman? Right? That's completely the wrong response, right? Uh, It's not the model people are impressed by. It's the artist. who painted that portrait Leonardo da Vinci man what a genius he is or if you're a woman of a certain age and you have some plastic surgery done and you come out of the clinic looking precisely as you did at 21 then you are a living testimony to your surgeon's skill aren't you Uh, And if the clinic puts you on the cover of their brochure, it has nothing to do with you and your fabulous DNA, does it? It's an advertisement for the skill of your surgeon. Brothers and sisters, on that day, when we see a wretched sinner, the likes of Jimmy Stowe, walking the streets of glory, no one is going to think, great job, Jimmy. Good on you. What a holy, spiritual fellow you must have been. No, for all of eternity... Brother Jim will be a living testimony to the incomparable riches of God's grace in Jesus Christ to an undeserving rebel. One who by nature, just like the rest of mankind, is deserving of God's eternal wrath. And for all eternity, Jimmy's very salvation will point people away from himself to the one to whom he owes his salvation, Jesus Christ. Really, The new heavens and new earth be one giant trophy case, populated exclusively with objects of undeserved salvation favor. Why did God make us alive in Christ, raise us in Christ, and seat us in the heavenly realm with Christ Jesus? So that God might demonstrate forever the overwhelmingly merciful loving, and gracious nature of His divine character expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That's why. Verse 7 is such an important, important verse in this text. That's why. God gets all the glory. Guilty sinners get the grace. Our final point. The glorious capstone. The last two verses of the passage. Point number 3. God's new creation. Verses 8 to 10. Now, Before I read these verses, and arguably these are the most famous verses in the whole New Testament, I want us to notice three foundation words. That's what I call them. Foundation words of the Christian good news in verse 8. Grace, saved, and faith. If we're to understand anything about Christianity and the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ, these three words must be understood. Look at verse 8. For it is by grace... You have been saved through faith. Grace, that is God's free and and his undeserved mercy. If you think you deserve God's mercy, you don't understand grace at all. It's free and undeserved mercy. That is the basis of our salvation, which is the next word. For it is by grace you have been saved. And that's more than just forgiveness. It's also deliverance from the spiritual death, the satanic slavery, and the divine wrath, described in verses 1, 2, and 3. That's the context. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. That means faith is the channel. It's the pipeline by which God grants salvation. All the salvation blessings Jesus has won for his people, we appropriate that through faith. Think of a pipeline directly from Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross to your heart. It's through faith. Now, put it all together. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. And what Paul means by that is that saving faith itself is a gift from God. Of of course it is. How can saving faith... Come from a heart of a dead slave of Satan, trapped in bondage to the world and the flesh. Saving faith is not something a human being in that kind of bondage and deadness is capable of mustering up on their own. And were faith a work of our own doing, people would be in a position to take at least partial, partial credit for their redemption, right? Um... There there would be some room for Christian, for for human boasting. Uh, Jimmy could be strutting around the new heavens and new earth like a peacock, patting himself on the back and boasting, good job drumming up that saving faith. So, good for you for not being quite as dead in your sin and in bondage to the devil as all kinds of other people. Uh, Good job for having some kind of spiritual spark, some kind of spiritual sensitivity. No. Eternal salvation is the gift of God. Our faith is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. In the new heavens and new earth, it will not be filled with spiritual peacocks preening around with their meritorious spiritual achievements on display. Far from it. Instead, the new heavens and new earth will be filled with the salvation exploits of Jesus Christ. There will indeed be display in heaven, not self-display, God forbid, but rather a display of the incomparable riches of God's grace, mercy, and kindness through Jesus for his people. Have you ever been in the uh, the den of a hunter, and he has all of his trophy heads and stuff on the wall? Uh, and then the hunter will tell you his war stories, kind of like I was on the Serengeti when that lion sprang out from behind the tall grass and attacked, so I drilled it right between the eyes. That's a war story, right? But usually it's like, or there's a cute little deer licking water at the, at the stream, and bam, I shot it. <laughs> well, the new heavens and new earth will be one great big den filled with trophies, and we're the trophies, brothers and sisters. Trophies of God's grace lavished upon us in Jesus Christ, God will be able to point to Jessica and say, boy, you should have seen her. Jess was dead in trespasses and sin. She was a slave of Satan doing his bidding. But I made her alive with Jesus Christ, her resurrected Savior Jason Wagler, he was captive to the wicked ways of the world. He was constantly gratifying the cravings of his flesh. He was without hope. He was deserving of my furious wrath. But in my great mercy, I raised, I seated him with Christ Jesus in the heavenly realm, giving him dominion over all the satanic powers that formerly had controlled him. God made us alive with Christ Christ. God raised us up with Christ. God seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, and all that entails. Now, we might think by this point, Paul would be, he's kind of made his point, he has to move on to something else, but he's determined not to leave this theme until he's expounded beyond any possibility of misunderstanding. So he adds one more positive, decisive, and glorious affirmation in verse 10, and with this we'll close. Verse 10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Here is the final reason Paul gives that allows him to say that salvation in its entirety is a gift of God. God created Christians anew. We who were once dead in transgressions and sins and by nature deserving of God's wrath have been created in Christ Jesus into a spiritually alive people and are so now victorious over the evil cosmic powers that are ranged against us. This is entirely the work of God. We are, Paul says, His creation, His handiwork, his workmanship. And that's just another way of telling us that there is no, no, no room for boasting at all, Christian. None. None of us, none of this is due to us. Dead people cannot bring themselves to life again. Captive and condemned people cannot free themselves. And we've been created anew in Christ Jesus to do something, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. That means which he designed in eternity past and for which he has fashioned us that we should do them. You're seeing a huge degree of God's sovereignty in the very works that we do. And yet we're responsible to do them. But you're seeing God is sovereign even over the good works that we do as saved people. Which means, this also means good works, they're indispensable to salvation. Indispensable not as the grounds not as the means we're not saved on account of our good works or being holy right but it says it's as consequence and evidence of being created anew in Jesus Christ they go hand in glove and these good works brothers and sisters we we will do them we will do them because god has decreed in eternity past that we will and now we've come full circle formerly as verse 2 says in the greek we walked in trespasses and sins in which the devil had trapped us. But now, as the Greek says in verse 10, uh, we walk in good works, which God has eternally planned for us to do. So verse 2 and verse 10, the word walk is used both times. Paul's contrast between two lifestyles, evil and good, and behind them, two masters, the devil and God is now complete. And what's brought about this miraculous change? A new creation. A new creation brought about by the grace and power of God. A new creation, brothers and sisters, brought about by our union with the living Christ, whom God raised from the grave with his mighty power 2,000 years ago. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord God, what joy, what gratitude, what love fills our hearts, since by your Spirit we have come to better understand this amazing portion of Scripture, what a glorious, gracious, merciful, loving God you truly are. Though once we were dead in our transgressions and sins, you have, you have now made us alive in Christ Jesus. Though we were once all slaves of Satan, now we have been exalted and enthroned with Jesus in his heavenly session. How encouraging, how hopeful it is to know that we are not saved by our good works, but rather that our good works are a certain testimony to having been recreated in your resurrected and exalted Son. We are left in worshipful, grateful wonder. Your people at Royal York praise you, Lord, for full salvation. We praise you for the incomparable riches of your grace poured out on undeserving sinners like us. Your inexpressible love upon those who by nature are deserving of your wrath. Keep us humble, we pray. I pray, keep us perpetually shocked and marveling at the infinite magnitude of your grace towards sinners in your son, Jesus. A salvation accomplished only through his sin-atoning death and life-giving resurrection. We thank you in his name, Christ Jesus the Lord. Amen. Amen.